Welcome, I'm Max Horowitz, producer and host of Penderecki in Memoriam podcast. This podcast is created by Anna Pezhanowska and presented by Polish Cultural Institute, New York. Penderecki in Memoriam podcast unveils a multifaceted portrait of Krzysztof Penderecki with commentary from musicians, colleagues, radio programmers, and writers who lend insight and memories of Poland's greatest modern composer. This podcast is part of Penderecki in Memoriam Worldwide Project, honoring the life and legacy of the great composer. Thank you to project partners Dukes, Naxos, Ludwig von Beethoven Association, and Schott EAM for sharing Christoph Penderecki's music with the world. We appreciate you joining us in honoring and celebrating Penderecki's life and legacy. One of the world's leading conductors for both operatic and orchestral repertoire, Kent Nagano has been music director of the Hamburg State Opera and chief conductor of the Hamburg Philharmonic State Orchestra since September 2015. Between 2006 and 2020, he served as music director of the Montreal Symphony and as a much sought-after guest conductor, has worked with the world's leading orchestras including the Bavarian Radio Symphony, the Munich Philharmonic, the London Symphony, the NHK Symphony, the Finnish Radio Orchestra, the Chicago Symphony, and many others. A Grammy Award-winning recording artist, Nagano has worked with countless labels including Deutsche Grammophon, Decca, Sony Classical, Warner Classics, and Electa Bis, Teldec, Pentatone, and Harmonia Mundi. Maestro Nagano has maintained a special relationship with Krzysztof Penderecki and has performed many of the great Polish composers' works with the OSM. Kent Nagano is here with us to discuss the musician and the man, Krzysztof Penderecki. Hi, Kent. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. When did you first meet Maestro Penderecki and what were your initial impressions? We met in the late 1970s, and it was very briefly. It was following a performance of the St. Luke's Passion, and I was with a group of students who just simply went backstage to say hello and greet the composer. So it was technically a meeting, but it was more just a handshake. We didn't meet in any meaningful way until much, much later. During my years with the Deutsche Symphony Orchestra, when we were participating in his wife's Beethoven Festival, which was taking place in Poland. We were on tour and following the concert, they invited us for a post-concert dinner. And that was when I really had a chance to have a meaningful exchange with this great composer. During those times, which was in the early 2000s, he remained one of the leading compositional figures in the world. His reputation was well-established, but it was already very impressive to see that his personality, his way of being, his way of speaking was very understated, very humble, very shy, and yet at the same time profoundly intense and cultivated. You've written about Penderecki's special compositional and creative skills and have noted, as many other musicians have, that what has set him apart was that he was a very successful avant-gardist while remaining a romantic. Yes, romantic, though I meant in specific terms, not just sort of a superficial adjective. 
If you think of those priorities or those focal points of the romantic composers, one always comes back to the fact that the arts weren't so divided into specific genres at that time. There was enormous cross influence between the theater stage, literature, the moving arts, ballet, for example. As I mentioned, the visual arts, but also extending on into sculpture, hand formation, handcraft. And perhaps the most important of all, was nature. And I think all of these aspects was what I meant when I said romantic. What they represent are those aspects which are touchstones for us as human beings to feel humanism. That, I felt, was the essential part of Penderecki, which combined with his technical mastery and a truly unique voice during the 1960s that really set him apart. For those of us who can remember the 1960s, it was full of experimentation. It was what seemed to be a very conscious effort to throw off a perceived status quo, a perceived limitation caused by some sort of formal tradition. In fact, looking back now from the benefit of the 21st century, we see that the performance formulas of classical music, it really has been something that's been under constant evolution. But particularly in the 1960s, there seemed to be a radical acceleration towards trying to break away from anything that might have felt confining from the past. And we see now in the middle of the 21st century that most of these have been completely forgotten. They have no historical or cultural significance at all, except to maybe be a divertisement. And what we see in Penderecki, among other composers who have gone on to become a part of our repertoire, his experimentation, yes, it may have been revolutionary at the time, but we see those uh, syntax that he was putting forward absorbed into the world around us today. And in Penderecki's case, certainly absorbed into all genres of music, including, I would say, popular music, film music. We simply hear those ideas that Penderecki put forward, which were new at the time, now simply a part of our natural language. His works have stayed with us, I feel, once again, because they speak to us on a clearly human level or on a romantic level. I'd like to discuss a piece which you mentioned before that you've performed many times with the OSM, the St. Luke Passion. This is a piece that you also performed at Penderecki's 85th anniversary celebration, as well as recorded live from the Salzburg Festival. Those performances were very special because while it's true that I have performed a number of Christoph Penderecki's work, this was the only time when I had the composer really in a collaboration form because he was at my side and we worked very, very careful in consultation from the very beginning of the rehearsal period through the performances and through the recording sessions. None of the other experiences that I had benefited from that direct contact or consultation. Either he was unable to come to the performances, so there was no contact at all, or he simply came to the performance and didn't really have anything to do with the preparation. So those were very special. Also special was to have been asked by Markus Hinterhäuser, who's the artistic director and intendant of the Salzburg Festival, to participate in his series at the Salzburg Festival, which was meant to showcase certain works that reflect a certain spirituality 
not necessarily religious works, but works that have, through consensus, what we would feel a spiritual characteristic or aspect to them. To have the Penderecki work be one of the pivotal works of that series, under that circumstances, to bring that work back to the Salzburg Festival many, many years, 50 years after it had been first performed there, with Penderecki and his wife there, as well as the chorus that Penderecki had worked with for many of the creations of his piece, it combined together to make an unforgettable experience for all of us. Written for voices and orchestra in 1966, the pieces modeled around the passions of Bach and the events leading up to the crucifixion. Penderecki was strongly influenced by Bach, like so many are. He pays homage to the great composer by using the B-A-C-H motif throughout the work as the piece proceeds in the sequence of narratives and arias and choruses, and of course in true Penderecki fashion displays a very stark simplicity and directness. Yes, I would agree very much with you. What I was still in my adolescence when the premiere of the St. Lucas Passion took place, and I have rather vivid recollections of it being played for the first time in San Francisco, which was the close big city to the village where I grew up. And it was from its very beginning a sensation, as you rightfully mentioned, to be influenced and inspired by Johann Sebastian Bach. It has been a recurrent theme for composers since really the, the 19th century up until today without any rupture at all. But how and when Penderecki wrote the St. Luke's Passion, it came within this context of experimentation that I referred to in, during the 1960s. And it also came on the heels of other works combined in a period with other works such as Trinity or the Stabat Mater and just a few later the Magnificat. I think at that time, particularly when social issues, at least on the West Coast, were being called into discussion, the ideas of how we define family, of how we define personal relationships, of how we define spiritual content, there was a lot of experimentation going on, a lot of questioning going on during those years. Again, I was a bit too young to have participated in those discussions or in those social actions personally. <laughs> Confortans eum, et factus in agonia prolixius orabat, et factus est sudoreus sicut gutes sanguinis decurrentis in terram. I think that Penderecki, as well as other composers like Olivier Messiaen, would so overtly share their profundity of beliefs and write them without any filter through their artistic ways of expression, I think impressed all of us at the time. And of course, the fact that the work is so well written, I think everyone had a feeling that it would be, as it is today, 50 years later, regarded as one of the 20th century masterpieces.
the Passion's 27 sections deliver great emotional impact and, as you just pointed out, is among the most important of the large-scale choral orchestral works of the 20th century. you attribute this to the reason the piece took off the way it did it's very difficult to attach any sort of analytical words to the saint luke's passion because if you just alluded to it even defies categorization as a form yes there are extended passages of true aleatoric writing yes there are moments where you do feel some sort of tone row structure alluded to the B-A-C-H, but there are also moments where clearly there's a reference to serial writing, yet most people would not say that it's a atonal work because there are structural markers, overwhelming large gestural points, which the piece drifts into clearly harmony, that the traditional triadic form of major or minor tonality. In addition to that, it's even difficult to say whether or not it's a symphonic work because there are extended instrumental passages, whether it's an oratorio because it includes soloists and chorus, or whether it's an opera, in fact. Many times the work has been put on stage with a stage director. fact that it defies categorization, it defies really any sort of pigeonholing, was already apparent at the time. And I think it came at the timing where people were searching for things that didn't easily fit into tradition, didn't easily fit into what was perceived as an old-fashioned construct. Of course, during those times, when you're going through a transition period, it sometimes is difficult to grasp what the whole is with a very large overview or a large perspective. Today we see that Johann Sebastian Bach was perhaps the greatest master of these Gesamtkunstforms, where it defies categorization. How do you categorize the St. Matthew Passion?
So those compositional artistic creations, which defy categorization, they've been going on as long as man's genius has been exposed. It's just that at that particular time, I think that the creation of the St. Luke's Passion really struck everyone in a very, very impressive way. If I could also quickly add that coming back to the work for the 50th anniversary of Salzburg premiere, and bringing it back to Salzburg, it was also for me a chance to re-study the work, to re-familiarize myself with the work from the very, very beginning on through the performance. And as I was reworking through the score, I realized that over the many, many decades that had passed since the premiere, quite a bit of calcified material had stuck to the St. Luke's Passion. Excessively slow tempi, excessively thick textures, which no longer really represented what the score actually dictated. Prolonged fermatas, exaggerated rubati, a kind of a flexibility that within the very tightly defined structure that Penderecki, and I say tightly defined because there's an inherent feeling of dramatic tension if you really follow what Penderecki wrote, it did require a particular effort to carefully remove all of this what I call calcified material or extra cream or extra spices or extra sauce that had been added over the many, many uh, decades of repeated performance. So the Salzburg experience did do was a chance to revisit the work as a completely new work to try to get as close to what the composer's intentions were at its conception, which was in the mid-1960s, 1966, to see whether or not the piece would still impress so many years later. Of course, as we saw from the public and critical reaction to the performance at Salzburg, it was something of an important revisit to a great masterpiece and a real confirmation that this piece had the substance to be a part of our great repertoire on into the future. Penderecki wrote The Passion to commemorate a millennium of Polish Christianity, and the musical settings contain Latin texts from the Gospel of Luke, as well as other sources, hymns, psalms, lamentations. In 1966, considering the atheistic influence in Eastern Europe, I imagine this subject matter was considered to be potentially subversive to Poland's communist leaders, not just musically, but also in its religious content. Fortunately, most of us in the United States, most of us, not all of us, but we've never had the situation where we were living under such a government-controlled state as Poland was during the 1960s. So it's difficult to imagine what that must have been like. <laughs> Sometimes today I hear complaining about the 14-day quarantine that we're required to go under and the fact that we may be checked up on by the authorities from time to time. <laughs> 
course, that has nothing to do with living full-time in a government-controlled state that tries to regulate how we think and how we believe. We can only imagine that what you've just said must have been something of immense proportions and, and horrific in its own way. Et continuo ad cuchillo loquente cantavit gallus, et conversus dominus respectsit petrum, recordatus es petrus verbi domini, et egressus foras, and to have such a strong statement of belief must have been something that stood out in a very obvious way. You're very familiar with this piece, which is scored for orchestra, large orchestra, a narrator who functions as a sort of evangelist and vocal soloists, as well as mixed chorus, boys choir. Can you talk at all about how you approach the orchestration? The importance that I've found is that much of the tension, and I would say musical tension, structural tension, the tension of form, and also the emotional and dramatic tension is based upon the details. very tempting as an interpreter. And by interpreter, I also mean the narrator and the vocal soloist as well as the chorus. To somehow become so deeply involved that proportions become exaggerated to the point where they no longer remain faithful to the composer's intentions. It's just because the music is so seductive that one can find themselves being carried away. 
Knowing the piece now from the benefit of several performances and living with the work for many years, and most importantly, working with a composer, it's clear that a very defined concept of detail that Penderecki writes into the score will really help the end interpretation. There is a difference for Penderecki, whether he writes one piano or three piani. There is a difference if he writes an accelerando taking place at a certain point rather than simply allowing it to take place over a more compact or over a broader period of time. And it is incredibly important that one understand the text as it comes from both the soloist and from the chorus. the understanding, clear understanding of the Latin text, something is almost immediately lost. So a grand sweep of a warm and comfortable, beautiful sound, as wonderful as that may feel to the interpreter, it does take away much of the content of what is actually taking place during the composition. links between the orchestral compositional moments and the text are delicately and intricately intertwined and every request that Penderecki writes in the score is meant to enhance certain words, certain emotional or intellectual feelings, simply to disregard of all that for a general wash puts at risk the power and the strength of the performance. And with all of Penderecki's modern devices in this piece, tone clusters, glissandi, the extended vocal techniques, this passion is passionately devout. Some have noted that it's worthy of Bach in its integrity and its workmanship. Well, I think what was most important is in a rare moment of simply having some relaxed time in Penderecki's home, we went out to his garden, which is beautiful and very, very large, and sat there quietly. And he shared his reverence for the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, a composer that for me and almost everyone whom I know, it remains kind of a foundation. And Penderecki and I shared our beliefs that it's the one music that you would call music of perfection. There's not a note that you can change without remarking that something's not right. Johann Sebastian Bach is the one composer who really wrote perfect music. And as we were speaking, you could feel an honest and immense sense of humility uh, coming from Penderecki. He spoke with such reverence of Bach that we may compare his music to Bach today, but I'm certain that Penderecki himself would never make that comparison.
sitting in his garden, also admiring his collection of trees. Yes, these trees, this is now, I think, legendary. Every country that Penderecki visited, Penderecki tried to bring back a tree or a plant from that country, and that's what makes his garden so <laughs> very special, very, very exotic. It's kind of like a Garden of Eden. How did you feel with him in the audience for the Salzburg performance? As you might imagine, it did bring electricity into the air, I would say into the general air, not just for me, but for the whole public who acknowledged his arrival and showered him with praise following the performance. We were all aware that it was towards the end of a very long and very difficult journey for Christoph Penderecki, all of us who were there. And we all felt that it was an extraordinary occasion to be able to play his music in front of the master. And we were all keenly aware that this was a privilege, that it's not something that comes every day, and we were very much aware that it might never come again. Just to conclude, what are your recollections of last March 29th when he passed away? The life of Penderecki is one that is so exemplary. The importance of being honest, especially as a creative artist, to never compromise that honesty, of course, to try to secure the foundation and solidify the structure by ever-increased study and integrity. But at the basis, honesty and a faithfulness to that honesty is really something that's essential for any voice that has any hope of becoming a universal voice. As we see throughout Penderecki's compositional journey, it's never been compromised by fashion or by mode, what is popular. Even in the 1960s, I remember as a young boy having arguments spring out between my professors, some of whom felt he was a really important composer, others of whom felt that he was uh, just a trivial composer with nothing to add. And if you read today, look back and read about the controversy that he generated in those early days, it was clear that all the prevailing schools of composition at the time rejected him. He was all on his own. He didn't belong to anybody, completely isolated. In fact, on the contrary, people pushed him away. They didn't want to be associated with his music. And yet, we see that Penderecki didn't feel any need in the end to alter the path that he was following, his own honest pathway. We feel that as a form of integrity throughout his entire canon until he passed away. <laughs> He 
His death was an emotional loss for me, personally, to lose a great artist, to lose a great composer who helped define the rich creativity of the 20th century, but also because following the performance in Salzburg of the St. Luke Passion, Penderecki was actively speaking about whether or not we might collaborate if he would write another Passion. And he felt that it had been quite a while since he had written a Passional or an extended oratorial form. And we were actively discussing whether or not we might conceive a project where we could take another step forward in that direction. And then word came that he had passed away. So it was a great personal loss as well as a loss for the entire music-loving community. Maestro Kent Nagano, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast to discuss the great Christoph Penderecki. My pleasure. Thank you very much. This is Max Horowitz, producer and host of Penderecki In Memoriam podcast, created by Anna Pezhanowska and presented by Polish Cultural Institute New York. Thank you to project partners Dukes, Naxos, Ludwig von Beethoven Association, and Schott EAM for sharing Christoph Penderecki's music with the world. We appreciate you joining us in honoring and celebrating Penderecki's life and legacy. Make sure to subscribe.